Well, I want to welcome all of you to the Montana DSA podcast. Uh, my name is Frank Kremkowski from Helena DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America chapter here in, in Helena. This uh, podcast is a project of Montana DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, with its uh, four chapters uh, here across Montana in Billings, Bozeman, Helena, and Western Montana. Um, in case you're not familiar with DSA, DSA members, Democratic Socialists of America, believe that both the economy and society should be democratically run and organized to meet human needs, not to make profits for a few. That's very different from the uh, kind of more public propaganda version that Republicans uh, use when they talk about socialists as being some kind of uh, proposers of dictators, dictatorships. But that's not us. Uh, the lay of the land in the 2023 legislative session here in Montana has been the focus of our previous 14 um, episodes of this DSA podcast. And today our guest is a longtime friend of ours, member of DSA, Mark Anderlich of Missoula. He is a longtime organizer and is currently the chair of the labor working group of the Western Montana chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Mark was an organizer for 17 years with the union Unite Here, working with hospitality and low wage health care workers. He's a former president of the Missoula Area Central Labor Council, AFL-CIO. Prior to that, he was an organizer with the Green Party and an organizer with various campaigns for nuclear disarmament. He's also currently, uh, for the last four years, actually, the moderator of a podcast called uh, Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%, which is uh, uh, produced in Missoula. And I want to welcome Mark. Uh, thank you very much for being with us here today. It's my pleasure, Frank and Marshall. <laughs> we have Marshall Mayer uh, here as well, who's the producer of this series. I'm the host. Um, and we're very glad to be here with Mark today especially since uh, at the April 1st meeting of the Western Montana DSA, which I uh, was part of via Zoom, the uh, members of the Western Montana DSA discussed and then passed a resolution concerning support for a United Parcel Workers strike. And so that'll be the beginning part of our discussion here uh, Mark is, as I said, the currently the chair of the labor working group of that Western Montana chapter of DSA, and um, like to has, have Mark explain what that resolution's about and what the issues are that uh, led uh, Western Montana DSA to support that resolution. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Frank. Um, so, first of all, background: uh, the Teamsters Union, which is one of the largest unions in the country. Um, are up for, are in, actually they've started contract negotiations right now nationwide with United Parcel Service, UPS. And uh, they, uh, they're anticipating they may have to be prepared to go on strike. And if that is the case, if negotiations uh, fail before August 1st, when the contract actually expires or July 31st, when the contract expires, um, then 
you know, the union is already starting to organize themselves uh, to uh, be strike ready and uh, to help influence those negotiations uh, more to the workers' side. Um, if they go out on strike, it will be the biggest strike uh, that the nation has seen for a number of years and um, will disrupt all kinds of, you know, of course, package delivery uh, and UPS is one of the biggest ones. Um, so uh, the resolution, the strike ready resolution that was passed by Western Montana DSA um, really is about committing our chapter to preparing ourselves to be strike ready to do support for the Teamsters Union if, if they go out on strike. Or, um, and also, uh, it, it's something that I am sure the Teamsters will use uh, in their bargaining process before August 1st to say, well, we have, you know, uh, we have 50,000 people around the country who are committed to uh, joining the picket lines in case that happens and building support in the community for the Teamsters, uh, that it can be uh, sometimes is a, you know, can be a deterrent to employers from being too, uh, uh, too nasty with the workers. But so that would be the hope anyway, but to be ready, the, the resolution is really uh, aimed at getting our chapter, uh, number one, to understand what the issues are uh, and to build relations with the local Teamsters. Um, in, in our part of the state, it's uh, Local 2, which is based out of Butte. And they cover pretty much the Western half of the state. And there's also another Teamster Local 190, which is based in Billings, and they cover the Eastern part of the state. Um, <clears throat> so we've already began to uh, reach out to the leadership uh, of Local 2 of the Teamsters. And um, they seem like uh, enthusiastic about our potential support. And of course, there's a long road to go. Uh, the strike may never happen, um, but uh, if it does, then we, uh, our chapter and hopefully other chapters in Montana and around the country will be ready to um, help support the Teamsters. Well, and of course the Teamsters, uh been around for a long, long time. As you said, it's one of the largest, if not the largest union. Um, I just noticed, uh, just for a little background here, that something interesting that the Teamsters, yesterday on the 55th anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination, uh, brought him in as an honorary member. Because as um, many will know, Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis, Tennessee, but why was he there? He was there to support the garbage workers and sanitary workers on strike in Memphis. And uh, he knew as a democratic socialist himself, Martin Luther King, that uh, he needed to be in their solidarity with those, those workers. And so these workers uh, who are now in the Teamsters here uh, in Montana uh, may need our support. And uh, this resolution from the Western Montana DSA, I imagine will be shared with uh, other chapters of DSA across the state to see how we can work together to uh, support them in their um, efforts to, you know, make some progress on their uh, their contract demands. 
Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it, it's already been shared, I think. And I, I think your chapter and Helena has been discussing it too. Um, and so there's there's great interest in that. And this is a this is a national effort, actually. So um, and and DSA has a uh, national labor commission or labor committee. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, it, it has changed recently from one to the other, but same same outfit. But um, uh, this national La labor committee is uh, very active in uh, helping uh, also uh, small places uh, to organize, like Starbucks and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it, even just mom and pop places like we have in Missoula that uh, uh, we've we've been helping uh, workers organize themselves and get recognition for a union and also negotiate, which is a tougher thing is negotiating their first contract. That's uh, more, much more complicated and, and actually a more, usually a more difficult um, procedure. But uh, so this National Labor Commission was the one that uh, has been working with the you know, international leadership of the, of the Teamsters to you know, see how we can, uh, in in some ways, and, and this is just a rule in labor altogether. Is if workers decide to go out on strike, um, it is, um, you know, we, it, it, you know, we offer our help, and if they, you know, say yes, we want this and this, that's exactly what we do. We we it, it's their fight, and we're there for to be in support. So. Um, so this is quite a, you know, a well-organized uh, in terms of DSA, well-organized uh, uh, at, uh, attempt at really providing critical support. And also, too, I think it's important for DSA members, some of whom, you know, never have belonged to a union or really know that much about, <clears throat> about uh, worker organizations that... Um, Getting to know, getting uh, getting to know, and getting building relations with local uh, uh, union members and workers uh, in their struggles, and uh, and that's a we consider that to be very important for um, for our theory of change. Well, I I've been following a little bit after this uh, of the issues here through reading some of the. Uh, um, press releases and articles put out by the, a group called the Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is a uh, more um, grassroots group within the Teamsters Union, uh, which has uh, been pushing uh, what we would call class struggle dimensions of these things. Because as um, anybody who's studied a little bit of unions will know, the Teamsters in lots of people's minds are associated with a mafia type of um, uh, leadership from years ago. That is, of course, gone. But uh, TDU, the, the Teamsters Democratic uh, Union folks, have uh, called to my attention some of that history of how those uh, union fights have have uh, have evolved over the years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, like you say, have never been a member of a union uh, and maybe know some union members or have uh, no, no real basic connection. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a grandson who used to work for UPS here in Helena until he decided that uh, this was not a place for a human being to work, <laughs> uh, given the kind of 
pushing and deadlines and, and rush jobs and, and heavy work uh, on unreasonable deadlines. Um, he's now working at a, a different uh, job in, in Bozeman. Um, but a lot of these issues uh, are, are such crucial things for um, basic living wages and, and living conditions and work conditions that are, are fit for human beings. Uh, what are some of the, can you tell me more about some of the, the wider issues within the union movement that uh, you would say we should, we should know about to, to, to say, these are the things we need to study up on and, and get up on, uh, get, get up to speed on so that we can uh, effectively, uh, um, you know, be comrades to our brothers and sisters in the union. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I certainly can, Frank. Um, and I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> um, a little history is, is always good. And uh, in this case, uh, you know, in the, in the late 1920s in the United States, the labor movement was pretty much flat on its back. Um, and uh, really uh, membership was not high, unions were not strong. Um, and there were several reform movements that happened within, uh, at that time, the, the, the labor, the main labor federation was the AFL, American Federation of Labor. Um, and they generally chose to organize um, by craft, right? So uh, when you um, were, uh, say, uh, you, you in, in a school, for instance, if you were a teacher, you'd be in the teachers union. If you were, uh, you know, tended the boiler, you'd be in the boiler makers union. If you were, uh, you know, serving lunch, you were in a different union, right? And so in all in the same school. And so, uh, and that, that has roots back into the middle ages with the guild system, right? That uh, people would learn a trade, become an apprentice, and then become a journeyman, and then and then sometimes, uh, in order to teach apprentices, you had to be a master, um, and that's that was the origin of quite a bit of the labor movement, and the AFL tended to be that way. Well, they also at that time excluded blacks, and uh, Hispanics, and women, um, and reformers had been trying for years to. Uh, people remember the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, uh, to move toward a kind of organizing that was um, much more realistic, that could actually accrue way more power to, um, to workers and kind of break away from that old guild system. And uh, one, of the, one of the reforms that was brought about was this idea of industrial unionism, which meant that um, if you worked in a school, for instance, that everyone belonged to the same union, okay, instead of separate craft unions. Um, there was an organization uh, that in the early 30s, again, um, you know, even when the Great Depression started, unions were pretty weak. Um, and so there was a, actually several people, but uh, uh, William Z. Foster is probably the most, one of the most influential. He was, uh, he was an organizer, labor organizer. He was uh, a leader in the Communist Party. And he wrote a book um, about organizing the steel industry, which was a, 
really uh, uh, had been traditionally a very difficult place for unions to organize, and uh, mostly on the East Coast. And anyway, Foster uh, had kind of taken up some really um, important uh, lessons learned from the the Wobblies and and other reformers, and came up with a method of organizing workers so that they own their own organization, right? That the, the, that the workers were, were centered in the organization, not the leadership. And, uh, and that uh, they were about uh, organizing to overthrow capitalism, right? It wasn't just about getting higher wages, although that was part of it, but they also um, you know, would organize people into thinking as a class. And, and to organize as a class. So, um, you know, an injury to one is an injury to all kind of thing. Um, that was very successful. In fact, most of what is of the labor movement today was really created in the 30s and 40s using this, what's called the CIO method. And it's being taught it's kind of been updated and taught now by Jane McAlevey, if people are familiar with her uh, work. But in any event, um, unions got very strong and and they were very militant. And in fact, I learned something the other day that during World War II, even though there was a freeze on wages and a freeze on uh, prices and workers could not go on strike, and um, <clears throat> but... Uh, apparently, but there were more strikes during World War II in that given time period than at any equal time period in U.S. history. And um, and I think this, uh, because employers, uh, you know, capitalist employers are about one thing, right? And they're about making a profit. And the only way they can make a profit is if they don't pay the workers everything that the worker has created. Um, so uh, profits always uh, stolen labor uh, as as such, and the capitalists like it that way, and they use that use those profits to secure the political system, the judicial system, however they can try to influence things to work in their on their behalf. Um, and so unions became so strong. Uh, during World War II, especially, and it they were after the war, they were just going to pick up where they left off and really try to bring in some, you know, some form of socialism. Um, and the uh, owning class, the capitalist class, got very upset, and of course, and they fought back, and they um, they got a law passed in 1947 called the Taft Hartley Act, which outlawed. Um, all of the very effective tactics and, and strategies that the union had employed had employed up to that point. And, but it, and then kind of as a, I mean, uh, part of that law also created uh, what's known as the so-called right to work laws, um, which have an impact, but I would say it's kind of in the middle of the list of most serious impacts on, on unions at that point. Um, I think the two biggest uh, impacts on unions uh, beyond right to work, one was, like I said, outlawing like the secondary 
secondary strike um, or a, a secondary boycott kind of thing. Um, some of those strategies were extremely effective and led to almost like general strikes. So in, in a city. Um, so uh, the other big factor, I think, in uh, reigning in unions was a loyalty oath that uh, which um, in 1963, the U.S. Supreme Court found to be unconstitutional. But of course, that was like 16 years after it was implemented. And what that uh, loyalty oath was to do was to um, uh, that most of the effective organizers in the CIO movement were communists and, and socialists. And, uh, and so this loyalty oath was intended to draw them out and to basically uh, denounce their internationalism, I guess. Um, and uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of them refused to do that. So the unions fired them or fired them even if they were going to agree to sign. And so most of the effective organizers that had been cutting their teeth in the, in the uh, 30s and 40s were um, basically fired. Now, there's a few unions that refused to go along with that. Um, and those today, the ones that survived, uh, remain to be some of the most uh, strongest and militant unions in the United States today, like the International Longshore Workers um, on the West Coast is a, is a great example. Um, so when you get rid of all your organizers, what became, uh, what, how unions developed that at that time was in, in, into a term that we now call business unionism. And, um, Walter Ruther, uh, was pretty much the pioneer of business, in my opinion, business unionism, um, where, uh, labor at that time, it basically became, uh, what, what they described as a, <clears throat> um, a, a peace treaty between labor and management, big, big, uh, you know, big corporations where the corporation said, okay, after Taft-Hartley, we'll, we won't go after the unions. We won't try to break the unions. We'll negotiate with them. Um, as long as the unions give up their struggle to do away with capitalism. Uh, and and do away with their very effective strikes. So um, fast forward uh, when uh, lots of people, well, anyway, people our age, Frank, um, remember when uh, Reagan fired the air traffic controllers, that was kind of a symbolic um, break with that peace treaty, as it were. And um, but by that time, the unions had become such so entrenched into the business union model, which which really is about uh, all about the leadership, right? Where members are there to help with numbers and pay dues, but most of the decisions get made by the leadership, and um, and then suppressing any kind of more radical tendencies within unions. Um, they had gotten rid of all their organizers. They had lost the the, uh, the knowledge and the skills that came with doing this kind of organizing, uh, the CIO method of organizing that was so successful in the 30s and 40s. And so uh, they basically, unions were unable to fight back. Uh, business unionism depended upon the goodwill of the employer. And, um, and so what we're seeing today 
like with the Teamsters is a great example. Teamsters for a democratic union partially embraced, um, you, you know, the CIO method and, and this, this kind of history, but really uh, it, it was more about trying to, uh, trying to involve the membership in a much more organic and, 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 uh, and, and a much more effective way. And they pretty much won um, because business unionism is really <laughs> has been failing for for many 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 years now. Um, in the failure to fight against the firing the air traffic controllers and then on, and so a lot of people are a lot of workers are beginning to relearn this history and say, well, you know, we can we could do better. We got to be doing better than what we're doing now as a union. And so they're looking to people like Jane McAlevey to learn about the CIO method. They're looking more, you know, toward uh, socialism and class analysis to describe and to explain what is going on today and why workers are in such a terrible shape in this country um, overall. And uh, and looking to uh, say, well, enforcing the hand of leadership, say either you you get off this business union model or we're going to replace you. And that happened with the Chicago teachers. It happened with the Los Angeles teachers. It's happened with the maintenance of way railroad workers recently, just in the last couple months. Uh, it's happened uh it's happened partially with the United Auto Workers, which is Walter Ruther's uh, uh, union. And in fact, his, uh, his caucus, the administration caucus, for the first time since uh, Walter Ruther was the head of the United Auto Workers, that there was a different caucus in charge. So that's, that's historic. And there's lots of struggles ahead. But the Teamsters also were very successful in um, trying to, in, in, you know, my understanding is that the, um, you know, the son of Jimmy Hoffa, um, James P, um, was very much a business union type, and um, one of the one of the hallmarks of business unionism is concessions to the employer, right? Um, givebacks, um, and uh, uh, and so there was. Uh, you know, very, very disturbing <laughs> givebacks to uh, uh, to the employer in, in the different uh, employers that they that they worked with. And uh, it really uh, incensed the members enough. So they elected a new leadership. And so this new leadership, you know, still untested and we'll see where it goes, but it's definitely a hopeful sign in, in, in that union and lots of other unions that we're finally moving away from business, the business union model and more toward the organizing or class-based uh, union model, which um, I, I, I have confidence is going to be, it, it's always a struggle, but I have confidence that that's going to be more successful. And as that becomes more successful, I think more unions are going to be where union members are going to demand the same for their union. Thanks for that background. I I was uh, reading the article that you uh, asked me to take a look at um, in the interview with Joe Burns, whose book Class Struggle Unionism is mm -hmm. described a bit in that article. 
uh, in Left Voice, the uh, mm -hmm. uh, online journal. It also was published in uh, Popular Resistance, which is a, uh, a daily uh, uh, news source put out by uh, Dr. Margaret Flowers from the Baltimore area. And he, of course, uh, describes class struggle unionism as something that, that needs to grow. Um, I'm just wondering, uh, when we mentioned the uh, railway union uh, issue just a second ago, um, the railway union workers uh, had no rights to take off sick leave and things like this before they attempted to go on strike, but they were thwarted in their ability to go on strike what was that, uh, six months ago or so? Maybe even longer yeah. than that. Yeah. But uh, would you say that among the the Democrats and, and Joe Biden president, uh, do they have a business union model in mind when they say that they're supporters of unions or do they also somehow open themselves up to class struggle unionism? Yeah, that's, that's a great question, Frank. Um, so... Of course, that remains to be seen to some degree. However, what we have seen so far is that, in in, in my my opinion, uh, President Biden and the Democratic majority in Congress, uh, through the rail workers under the under the train, as it were, um, and there was no need for them to impose a contract that most of the rail workers across different unions see, and they're already starting to become more industrial union, right? That they're, that these separate craft unions, which the railroads have been terrible at maintaining the old style craft unions, they're starting to work together more a little bit, uh, which is a good sign um, because uh, there's more power, there's more numbers of workers and there's more power to uh, create the disruption, create the crisis in the rail companies for them to take seriously their huge, their, they have many issues. Frank, you touched on one and that was the, uh, you know, uh, having paid sick leave, which lots of people take for granted, um, but uh, is, is only been one through, you know, workers fighting, right? That's, that's, that's it, it hasn't generally, it's not handed to workers by politicians. But in this case, um, you know, if you focus on that, and there was a few other issues, right? Um, lack of staffing being another big one. Um, and the, uh, you know, this, the, the rail situation is a great way of understanding where we're at right now. There is a, a National Railroad Administration. Um, they're a captured, uh, what's called a, a captured uh, 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 regulator uh, by the railroads. Uh, so the, the, they're very weak and they don't, you know, we saw this accident in East Palestine, um, Ohio, uh, where the, the, there were things that happened that should have never happened if the regulator, if the federal reg regulators were doing their job but they're captured, right, by the rail industry. And um, this is one of the ways that the capitalists figure out how to keep things, keep that those profits rolling in. Um, and then what Biden and the Democratic Congress should have done 
is um, th they had two options, in my opinion. Um, they chose the third option was to throw the workers under the, under the train, as I said. Um, they chose the worst option of all. Um, but what they should have done is either one of two things. One, they should have uh, allowed the workers to go on strike. Um, and the workers still could have gone on strike, but they weren't organized well enough and not strong enough. They made the call that they weren't going to do that. Plus, um, it's another, maybe another year when they start negotiations again. Uh, so they're thinking right now that they're getting organized and getting ready, much better prepared than they were this last time. So part of it is on the unions, right? Um, and the workers need to demand, uh, a, you know, a more effective uh, union leadership. Um, and they are like the, the, uh, the maintenance of way workers uh, uh, totally replaced a longtime president of their union to someone that was brand new and um, also uh, very much engaged with this, uh, you know, class-based unionism, right? So <clears throat> there could be some really good changes happening among the railroad unions, but uh, um, which is where you know, in some sense, it's an easier argument to make that the workers should, I mean, the system is sort of set up that the workers should struggle for their own cause and for the cause of the, you know, their fellow workers. Um, but the Biden and the Democrats didn't choose that option. And they didn't choose the other option, which was kind of the more, uh, as Joe Burns talks about liberal unionism, right, where the um, unions go to the government and get laws passed for to ensure benefits. So the Congress could have made it mandatory that the uh, railroad unions or railroads uh, provide paid sick leave. Okay, that would have been uh, uh, the the what Burns calls the liberal unionism aspect. They could have done that too, right? But they chose neither, and they chose uh, so thinking that there's any, uh, and, and this was not hard to see, uh, thinking that the Biden administration, supposedly the greatest labor uh, president, uh, you know, since Roosevelt, I think is, um, if that's the case, then it, we've had some very, <laughs> very poor uh, political representatives and uh, for, for the labor movement. And uh, and I think that uh, any hope that they're going to change their tune anytime soon, I think I think that's really just a false a false hope. Um, there may be some marginal things that could be won by workers uh, through you know through the uh, Congress or the president at this point, um, and they're not. Yeah, I just don't think that there's much hope that way. And so what that leaves is that workers having to organize themselves and having to, um, you know, uh, fight, fight their own battles, as it were, which I think is probably going to, it's more difficult, and it requires much more from individual workers. But I also think that people are really hungry for that right now, because, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking here from southern Utah, and Utah is a pretty conservative state. And, you know, people I know here, they're just as desperate to try to figure out how to improve things for the working class as as anyone in Montana or anywhere else, uh, because really, you know, the 
the wheels are falling off and um, and and there is uh, kind of a historic opportunity, in my opinion, you know, for workers to kind of pick up where the CIO left off in 1947 and and to do it to do it maybe even better. Um, and so this is this is part of um, why we do this in DSA, right? Is that uh, nobody else is talking about these things hardly um, and thinking about this in a much broader uh, sort of social change uh, perspective. So there have been quite a few um, fairly well-known uh, union organizing ev uh, events and, and, and efforts lately. Uh, I think of Amazon, Amazon workers, Starbucks workers, and now uh, United Parcel, UPS workers. Um, and it's, it's in my mind, it's easier to see how I could connect up to to UPS, Starbucks workers, and Amazon workers, than I can to the railroad workers. But it seems that um, this class struggle or class-based uh, unionism is the closest to some of the basic ideas of democratic socialism, which are saying that uh, we want to democratically organize things, including our unions. Uh, but also to recognize that, uh, as a lot of people, you know, really are taught not to say that there's a billionaire class and a corporate class that makes the basic decisions in almost every aspect of life. And that's not right. That's not just. That's not democratic. And Michael Harrington, one of the founders of DSA, said uh, democratic socialism is uh, defined by PCP, people using capital for people, not CPC, capital using people for more capital, meaning profits for the billionaires. So I, so I read that uh, UPS uh, made a profit of $13 billion last year. So I think they probably have a little bit of uh, wiggle room to meet <laughs> every, every possible demand <laughs> that the UPS union, uh, the Teamsters union can put forth, but uh, apparently they're uh, already balking at certain um, demands mm -hmm. that are made in the initial negotiations um, mm -hmm. concerning <laughs> future contracts. Yeah, it's um, in my, so I've, I've, I led a union for um but uh well 14 years out of 17 i guess um and every time we you know it, it was clear that money is not the primary issue with employers it's power they do not want workers to think that they have any say whatsoever uh in the in how to run the business and of course democratic socialism is all about uh, not only that, but, you know, having, you know, a common ownership, like in a worker-owned co-op, right? Um, or um, uh, the, uh, um, excuse me a second, um, <laughs> um, to, um, uh, and I lost my train. Um, well, I know it, it, about employers, uh, uh, really fearing more viscerally uh, the 
the power of workers getting together. And I, I have seen this, I have seen this many times uh, very directly, very unambiguously. Um, and so I, I generally think that um, employers, even though they might not be able to articulate it, they do operate out of a class consciousness. Workers often don't. And, um, you know, and as uh, uh, one of those, uh, the, he, he owns uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad um, uh, out of Omaha, right? That, that rich guy, uh, he said, uh, yeah, there's a class war going on and my class is winning. And he's absolutely right. He's absolutely right. Um, and so what we mean by class consciousness is that understanding that it's, a, it, um, you know, capitalism is a system, whether it's neoliberal capitalism or, you know, kind of the, uh, you know, the, the demo, uh, social democrat form of, of capitalism that we got in the 30s, right? Um, and in Europe, even more so, uh, but it's but it's still capitalism that where the where workers um, <clears throat> can work and create, um, you know, uh, my uh, 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 my partner she works in retail, and they're expected to sell you know uh, like a hundred dollars an hour. Well, she's not paid a hundred dollars an hour, right? She's paid like eighteen dollars an hour, and so. Uh, you know, you subtract that $18 for wages. And then, you know, there's also other taxes and things like that. So, you know, maybe it's at the most $24 an hour for, for labor costs. And then you have your product that you subtract that cost from. They, they probably make, you know, if, if they're selling $100 an hour, 50% of that might even be uh, uh pure profit, right? And, uh, and so, and that's what they really want to protect um, because it's, to them, it's free money, um, which it is, right? It's money that they've stolen from the labor of their workforce. Um, and so, you know, in democratic socialism, we, we want to be able to not only make, have workers be able to make decisions, big decisions about how a particular enterprise is operated or how the economy in general is managed because it certainly is managed um, uh, but also to um, you know do away with this uh, you know to to share in uh, to share in the the productive productivity right uh, i guess if you will uh, so that you know we probably don't have to work as much and we wouldn't have this terrible inequality of wealth in this country it's just obscene and um and also in the method of organizing this this is where the cio method comes in and where it's very relevant how unions are run at this point or not run is that uh you know unions need to be fully democratic and they're not lots of them are not and uh and that means that the 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 members are centered. They're the most important people, and it's the leadership that serves the members, not the other way around. And which is how things have evolved. And so, a lot of times, workers, you know, will, you know, talk about their union boss and their other boss, right? And which is really sad, uh, uh, sad commentary on 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 you know on some of the unions. So, 
you know, these are steps forward, I think, um, that we're seeing. And the railroad and the railroad workers, like I said, there there is an organization called Rail Workers United, and um, one of the things they've taken the sort of the uh, uh, you know the uh, organizer class based unionism. Uh, me uh, they're members of I think there's like eight different rail unions, and uh, they've joined together into a caucus across across the unions and one of the things they call for is nationalizing the railroads which most countries have already done um except this country well we have done a little bit amtrak and conrail are are in in essence nationalized uh, rail but only partially um much bigger is the the freight rail um and so they they are working you know, to try to get uh, union elections to get people who are like-minded in, in positions of influence, and then to really raise up the members to the point where they uh, feel like they own the union. That's that's sort of, that's the goal of the CIO method: is get the members to own the unions. Very individual, grassroots-based type of organizing and it's been used to great effect. I mean, probably the best example is the Los Angeles teachers um, where uh, just, was it last week or the week before, they, they walked, they, they were a, a, a union back in 2016, 2015 and that, uh, around that time, um, they were a union that were given up all kinds of concessions to the school district. And they were afraid of uh, charter schools, which has again been put into the Montana legislature. Uh, and uh, the members there were just sick and tired of the leadership, the business union model leadership, um, granting all these concessions and backpedaling on all sorts of things and not really being able to put up an effective fight against charter schools. Um, and so they elected a new leadership. Um, Jane McAlevey directly uh, uh, advise them and help train their organizers. And to the point where in 2019, uh, for the first time, and people couldn't remember how long, um, they had a, a, a supermajority strike. They had all, like in the high 90% people actually walking out. And if you think about how different all those people are, so it's 35,000 members in the teacher, in the uh, uh, unified uh, LA School District Teachers Union, um, 35,000 people, they were of all political parties, they were of all political stripes, ethnic, religious, racial. It, 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 in Los Angeles, you can, you can imagine, it's, it was very diverse, where there was lots of opportunity for them to fight each other over, you know, like politics, you know, Democrats, Republicans, whatever this method of organizing cuts through all that crap, right? And just says, no, look, there is, we have a common enemy <laughs> right now, a common opponent, and we need to unite and to be strong and to prove that um, we will do the ultimate disruption. If, if they're not going to negotiate with us uh, in, in a reasonable way, and by the way, the LA teachers were negotiating they did this really smart. They negotiated also for the community and for more park space, 
for stopping INS to go into their schools, to um, their uh, healthcare in neighborhoods that had that were healthcare deserts, right? Um, and so they were negotiating also for the students and the parents and the community members in their schools, in their school areas. And so they organized really smartly. And um, when, uh, when the school district management was balking at, I don't, I don't even know, I don't even remember what the particular issues were at that point, but um, they, uh, they, democratic, they democratically voted to go out on strike and they shut down the city of Los Angeles. They had 55,000 people uh, marching around city hall in, in Los Angeles. Now, with that diversity of a population, that just doesn't happen by the snap of a finger. That comes through lots of hard one-on-one -on -one organizing. But they were able to turn that around in about two and a half years with a co concentrated effort. And now, just a couple of weeks ago, they went out, they walked out on a two-day strike in support of the support workers um, that belong to the Service Employees International Union who were averaging about $25,000 a year in Los Angeles on, the, on their full-time work in the schools. So, um, so they walked out in solidarity and that was, that was like a high 90% walkout as well, completely closed down the schools, there was no question. So with that kind of power, that example, um, you know, really wanna help inspire other workers to figure out, okay, there, we don't have to be helpless. We don't have to be hopeless. We don't have to depend on the politicians who are often bought and sold, right? Um, and, and serving the oligarchy, okay? I, I think we have an oligarchy in the United States, which is ruled by the rich. Um, and, uh, and, and by using democratic means and people power, as it were, and being smart about it, um, we, can, we can overcome the oligarchy. We can overcome you know, the rapacious corporations, we can overcome uh, uh, our own self-doubts, which is one of the biggest, <laughs> uh, one, one of the biggest hurdles that we as a people need to get past in order to solve uh, the, the very, very pressing problems across the board that we're facing right now. You know, what you just said just uh, reminds me of of um, the thought I often have is that we we really pride ourselves in some way that on the mythology that we're the greatest democracy on earth, <laughs> but um, we're an oligarchy. Uh, but people are taught to be afraid to say that. I think mm -hmm. because that means that uh, boy, there we have to be nice to everybody, including the capitalists who you know don't pay us our 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 decent wages, uh, make us work uh, under conditions that no human being should work under, treat uh, people of color unfairly, uh, treat women unfairly, exploit young people uh, who are uh, just getting into the workforce. And then we say, uh, well, there's nothing we can do about that. That's the way it is. That's mm -hmm. that helplessness, hopelessness idea that you mentioned. And of course, um, that's a that's a big struggle because what are the sources of this uh, apathy? Um, it's not it's not that apathy is a is a uh, uh, 
thing that we all want to admit. A lot of people just say, well, there's nothing we can do. This is the way it is. You know, I've, I've got to go to work today. I've got to, you know, take care of the yard. I've got three kids to take care of. I can't get involved in, get involved in trying to have a, uh, expand democracy into every aspect of life. That's the mm -hmm. democratic socialists who want that. Well, that's us. Uh, mm -hmm. And what you're describing is your method, um, the CIO method, which is uh, the one uh, presented by Jane McElvey. And I've forgotten the name of her book, a well-known book. She's, she's got several, but the no shortcuts. Um, uh, organizing for power in the guild in the new gilded age that's that that's one of her key books she's got several yeah. but yeah that was one of the books that several of us from helen idea say read and participated in an online seminar with her uh, a couple of years ago mm -hmm. um, but it's the kind of thing where um you know it, it deals with those underlying issues that you described we do live in an oligarchy uh, there are lots of people who are uh owning this country and it's not the majority of the people right uh, it's a tough tough thing to face and and change but uh, as i think i mentioned michael harrington one of the founders of dsa not only said uh what i mentioned before that democratic socialism is people using capital for people's needs he also said that democratic socialism is the most humane of all political and economic systems. It doesn't right. solve the religious problems that we all have and spiritual problems, but it solves most of the rest of them. And unlike most other countries, um, we we don't have you know that many people involved in the democratic socialist movement. But he did say at the end of his autobiography, which came out in what, about 1989 or so, that we shouldn't give up. And he said back in, at the end of 18, 1989, that democratic socialism, the power of the people to control their politics and economics was like a seed buried under snow. And it may come out in the 21st century. And that's where we are. So right. Mark, I want to say we need to end up, but I want to give you a chance to uh, make any final comments about um, the uh, issues that we've talked about, anything you want to remind us about or call to our attention or other sources of information for um, being in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in the union movement and of uh, uh, becoming more active ourselves. Yeah, well, thanks. <clears throat> thanks for this opportunity for one. I, um, I love talking about this. Um, and I would say a couple of things that really, I, I you spoke earlier about apparent apathy. I, th I think it's more, uh, I'm not sure apathy is exactly the right word. I think it's kind of like a little more closer to hopelessness, right? Or not knowing what to do. What, what, where do we go from here, right? And, um, and I, I think it's beyond sort of debate that uh, things in this country are, are falling apart. I, I, I just don't run into anybody who challenges that much. Um, so they may have different ideas of what that is, but um, <clears throat> but I think that's basic. And so really what uh, to leave on a note of hope, and I think there's kind of three things to remember. One is that um, uh, the, the oligarchy and, and which defends 
capitalism to the to the last to the last penny. Um, they want you to be hopeless. They want you to believe that this is an the way that things are are inevitable. Okay, that 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 they they want you to believe that. Okay, because then you won't do anything about it. Uh, number number two is to understand that. Um, you know, you might imagine, I mean, people talk about, oh yeah, we need a general strike in this country or whatever, um, that there are things we can do, but, um, and we need to have imagination, a little imagination and maybe learning a little history. I think the history of labor in the thirties and forties is absolutely critical. And it doesn't just apply to the workplace. It can also apply to politics, I think, um, and to uh, landlord tenant um relations uh you know you go on wherever there's a more powerful person who who is not responding to the needs of the people or or your needs for that matter um that you need to understand that um, you do have power if you can create a crisis for that person right um certainly a strike against UPS this summer, if it, if it happens, would create a big crisis for UPS because they're not making any profit at that point, right? Or at least off of the workers that are on strike. That is sort of, uh, that is always kind of an ultimate weapon, right? Especially in capitalism, right? Because they need us to work to make them a profit. If we don't work, they don't get a profit. Um, but that doesn't magically happen. And that's the third thing I just want to remind people is that um, like the Los Angeles teachers, you can go from zero to 60 or 80 miles an hour. I guess I'll update that. Um, <laughs> uh, you can do that in a relatively short period of time. They did like three years, less than three years. It took that particular organization to undergo a, a major change in themselves and then to be able to bring that crisis to the Los Angeles school district, okay? In order for them to win things for themselves and their community. And like I said, um, this is happening all over the place in different kinds of ways. But these three things I think will help uh, people start to regain that hope and some confidence that, uh, you know, once upon a time, our ancestors, right, uh, not so long ago, our grandparents or great-grandparents, depending on how old we are, uh, uh, actually uh, created so much of what we take for granted today. And they, they had, they did that, uh, they didn't believe the dominant paradigm to they uh, were looking for things to uh, uh, how ordinary people can get power and create a crisis and those powerful people for those powerful people. And then three is, is learning how you build that organization and how you build that strength up. It's very doable. This is not rocket science. Um, and, and I think that if that path, if people find hope in that path, I think that's um, that for myself. I, if 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 that's one thing I can contribute to anything, is that and and that that we can always um, we're not without hope, as Harrington would say. Don't give up hope because 
uh, things, we can change things. And we can change things not magically, but through some hard work and some smart and some solidarity. Well, Mark, I want to thank you very much for being with us today at the, in this 15th episode of the Montana DSA podcast. Our guest today is Mark Andelik of the Western Montana DSA's Working Group on Labor Issues, uh, a wonderful person that I've known for actually more than 40, 43 <laughs> years. <laughs> oh, that, thanks, Frank. <laughs> so we're, we're, getting, yeah. we're getting old together, but yeah. uh, neither of us have given up hope. So I want to invite uh, everyone to uh, take uh, Mark's words to heart. Uh, and I also want to just mention again that um, Mark has a uh, podcast uh, on Missoula, from Missoula on Saturdays, I believe at noon times, generally. One, 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 one to three, usually. One to three. And it's also online. It's called uh, Voice of the People, Radio by and for the 99%. So thank you very much for being with us here on the Montana DSA podcast. And thanks again to you, Mark, for being with us. Thank you very much.